The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. In this episode, we will talk with landscape architect Bruce Holliday about his landscape design philosophy and how you can enhance your property's value. Bruce has seen just about everything in his many years as a landscape architect, where he has designed and installed landscape plant material, hardscapes, lighting, and irrigation for residential and commercial projects. At Pike Family Nurseries, he supervised 12 landscape designers that produce more than 2,500 landscape plans annually as director of the Pike Design Group. You will probably remember Bruce's distinct voice from his appearances on the Lawn and Garden Show with Walter Reeves, Saturday mornings on Atlanta's WSB Radio. Bruce earned his landscape architecture degree from the University of Georgia. I'm excited for you to hear his can't-miss strategies that add value every time they're applied. This is episode 34, Adding Value with Your Landscape Design, with Bruce Holiday on the Garden Question Podcast. You're invited to ask your garden design, build, or grow question at thegardenquestion.com. Not only do you get a chance to ask your own question, but you might inspire the next episode of the Garden Question Podcast. So go to thegardenquestion.com and ask your question. Bruce, what's your design philosophy? Overall, what I try to do is to provide customers with a design that's not only going to be easy to maintain when it comes to the planting part of it, whether it's grass or ground cover or shrubs. The biggest thing is adding value because what I spend most of my time doing is fixing things that should have never been done in the first place. And a lot of times that's because the person who put the plant in didn't really know what the plant was going to really do. My philosophy is to provide something that's going to not only be cost effective and easy to maintain, but add value. Within all of that, there are multiple solutions to almost any challenge, whether it's grading or drainage or plantings. And especially when it comes to plantings, there are multiple plants that you can use. So variety of colors and textures and different shades of green, the size of the leaf, all of those create the feeling and what commonly people call curb appeal. But if the whole plan is not based around the aspect of adding value to the landscape as it grows, then it was probably not well thought out. So bottom line is it needs to be and I heard a phrase years ago, plan that is comfortable to look at and easy to maintain. The project is not easy to maintain. That's one thing, but it needs to be comfortable to live in as well. And then add value, I think, is probably the thing that gets lost most of the time because a lot of people don't think two, three, five, ten years down the road. Like all of us, as we have children, we really don't know <laughs> what we're what we're doing when it first gets started. And, and, and as, as the children grow and we learn and, and we grow with them, we have to make adjustments. And plants are a lot like people is they grow and you have to make adjustments. Usually you have a pretty good idea of what your child is going to turn out to be personality wise anyway. But with plants, a lot of people don't have a clue what a plant is gonna actually going to do. So that's where as professionals, we need to look and view and see things 
over tens of thousands of plans that I've drawn, I've seen 30 or 40,000 particular residences that you look at plants and you say, well, wow, I didn't know the plant would do that. The plant would do this. The, the basic philosophy, if you have a designer that you're talking to and they don't talk to you about value, if they don't talk to you about added you know, revenue for you when you sell the house, then maybe you need to look at somebody else. Well, oftentimes a contractor will have you know one size fits all for for solutions. I used to keep up, and a lot of times if I see a plan without a name on it, a lot of times I can tell who the designer was because he used the same plant in the same place. In a lot of situations, you can almost tell a designer by the type of plants that they use overall after job after job after job. A lot of landscape contractors have go-tos that they know they can get. They're easy to purchase. So they know they can find them. And I have contractors that I have comments from, well, I can't find this plant. Can I use this plant? I say, no, you can't use that plant because it's not going to grow the same way. Wait for the other plant to come in. And then you can plant it at a later date. But a lot of these guys, they want to get in there, they want to plant it, and we'll forget about it. And I can understand that because going back several times costs them money with the economy the way it is and with the availability the way it is sometimes. They can't get all the plants need to. And this is where I tell the customer, wait until next season when the plant is available and don't compromise the entire design for a couple of plants here and there. Whether it's a drainage solution that contractors want to always put in pipe or always put in a dry creek or plantings that they always want to put in a ligustrum versus a camellia because it's cheap and it grows fast. You know, you want to have multiple options. I have people all the time that say, well, I don't know if I like that plant. Can you give me an option? Absolutely. There's several different plants that will fit in the same space. Sometimes one change necessitates a second or third change because you don't want to have too many things looking too much alike. I had a, a builder one time that he changed everything on the plan and he used different sized plants. But bottom line is, if you were to take a picture of it in, in black and white, then it, they would all look the same. That's another misconception that people sometimes have. A contractor may buy a plant that's three feet tall, that gets 10 feet tall, and he may have another plant that's four feet tall, that only gets five feet tall. And they put them in the wrong places and people don't have a clue, but they find out three or four or five years down the road that, wow, this plant was smaller than this other plant, but now it's three times bigger. What did I do wrong? Well, you can't always base what you see in a new installation that it means anything, that it means that this plant's only going to get this size or only get that size. A lot of times contractors have certain biases toward using plants because they know they can get them, they're easy, they're quick, and they don't want to have a whole lot of variety. And I can understand that. I have very few plants that I don't use. And the ones that I don't use, I don't use them because they have either diseases or they attract bugs or they're going to get way too large in any kind of situation. You need to have an open mind for using a variety of plants and not just be stuck on just one small group of plants that you would use as your palette. A good designer or a good landscape architect is really customizing the design to the site, then, is what I'm hearing you say. Absolutely. All of us like certain plants and use certain plants, and then there's availability of certain plants. I had a customer worked in a real estate office in the company I was working for. We did, did the design for every single house in the neighborhood. There's almost 2,000 homes. It was a very large project, and we did the design for every single one of them. And one of the ladies in the office said, I just want to have to tell you, I stole one of your plans because my house is very similar. And then this project went on for several years and several years later I saw her and she said you know I might should have had you come out because a lot of those plants are dying and I said well let me see the plan you use I said well the problem that you use even though the design is pretty much fine the plants were totally opposite of what they should have been you had a full sun site and those plants were a full shade site 
I had another builder one time that wanted me to draw like three plans and everybody had to use those three plans. And I said, I can draw you six plans, but not three plans because you've got five or six different site designs and I need to have one plan for sun, one plan for shade because you can't take and intermix sun and shade plans. I had a project that I did several years ago that I could tell that the person designing it was in an office somewhere because they use the same plants on the left of the walkway as they did on the right of the walkway and they forgot that there was a 48-inch diameter trunk oak tree on the right side and all the plants over there were growing a third this size because they were in full shade and the plants were full sun. The plants on the left side of the walkway did great. The plants on the right side of the walkway, not so much. This is where a property manager had contacted me to to see what the problem was. And basically, I had to redesign it because all those plants wouldn't work. Just because you have plants that you like, you got to make those fit the site, not only the sun and shade, but also orientation, north, south, east, to west. There are a lot of plants that will do well in Boston in full sun. They will survive down here and do very well, but they won't do well in full sun in the summer. Or in the case of some gardenias, they won't do well in full sun in the winter because the winter sun will actually burn them up. There's some tiny rules to follow. It's not that complicated. It's the kind of thing that you learn over repetition of what works and what doesn't work. The biggest thing that I get from customers when I'm walking the yard and talking to them and there's a plant that's there and I said, well, one of my favorite phrases is if it ain't broke, don't fix it. That plant's okay. I wouldn't use that plant because there are much other, many other plants, but you can do that if you prune it the right way. It can be fine. Or in the 60 seconds it takes me to draw another plant in that space, you could keep that plant for now. And then, you know, over time, as you decide that, hey, I, I really don't want to keep that plant, you know, 10 feet tall when it wants to go 15 feet tall, let's put in another plant. Then you can always do that in phases because almost all of us do landscapes in phases. So it shouldn't be the kind of thing you get scared from the very beginning. You, you can do it in phases and some parts you can leave for now, some parts you can put in later. Later, and you can kind of grow the plants in together so that in the future, some people, I would probably venture that probably 35, 40% of the people I draw a plan for never finish the plans because they get satisfied with whatever they get done or that's all the money they want to put into it. Now, I try to make it where they're going to use less and less mulch every year. So sometimes people say, well, I'm fine with putting in 50 bales of mulch versus putting in these ground covers or these perennials or something like that. But in every situation, you know, the plan has to do with the sun, the shade, the orientation, the slope and also with people's likes and dislikes. I have some people who like certain plants and some people hate some certain plants. So there's a lot of different ways to do that. How does a specimen plant become a weed? That's always something that's been amazing to me how in a lot of cases they'll buy a plant that says dwarf this or dwarf that and then they put it in a space where they didn't understand that dwarf means 10 feet by 10 feet and they put it in a space that's only 5 feet by 5 feet. The biggest probably misconception is A, people believing what they see on a tag or as I always like to say one of my favorite phrases is plants are like puppies. You don't buy a Great Dane and try to keep it a chihuahua and that's what people are doing. For instance, plants like Loropetalums or even Japanese maples. There are 20-foot varieties and there are 5-foot varieties. People will buy the cheapest one and say, well, I'll keep it small. The famous words of a frustrated gardener is, I thought I could keep it small. Almost any plant can become a weed. Crape myrtles are number one, Loropetalum number two, and then we get into the Japanese maples. The biggest single problem is that people buy a three-foot plant. They can't see how it could possibly ever get to be 20 feet tall. So that's basically how a weed is a specimen in the wrong place. Yeah, that's the definition of a weed is a plant in the wrong place, right? Yeah, that's what I'm saying is that a specimen can become a weed, but if you take that same plant and you move it somewhere else, that weed could become a specimen again, not allowing enough space. 
The biggest pet peeve I have is with typically builders and builders landscapers who now they are Stevens Holly, probably one of the most popular plants that they use. Whenever I do a house that a builder is going to live in, he puts in 10 to 12 foot Nellie Stevens Hollies and he puts them 10 feet away from the house. When he's doing a house that he's selling, he puts in a four foot Nellie Stevens Holly and he puts it two feet from the house. It's going to do the same thing. Pay attention to how big a plant gets. What I typically deal with is second and third generation homeowners who the first person said, I'll keep it small. The third person says, oh my God, what am I going to do with this? Why don't dwarf plants stay small? Well, they do. I used to do garden club talks, and one of my trick questions was, what do you call dwarf? And most people think dwarf means three feet tall. Well, if you understand in the horticultural field that dwarf is a relationship, for instance, in my house, uh, the builder planted some dwarf Burford hollies all across the front of my house. Within a week or two of moving in the house, I moved every single one of them. As a matter of fact, I moved one on the right front corner of my house and the other one on the left rear corner of my house. Both of those now are almost 20 feet tall, but it's a dwarf. Dwarf is a relationship. Standard Burfordy holly will go 40 feet tall. Dwarf is 15, maybe 20 feet tall. The same thing with Yopon holly. Dwarf Yopon holly will get six by six, whereas standard Yopon holly will get 15 to 20 feet tall. Another problem with some, quote, dwarf plants, like there's a camellia called Chinsonette camellia, and they're fantastic. They only get about three feet tall, but they get eight feet wide. The, the biggest thing to take away from this is A, you have to consider the parent plant and the fact that the parent plant may grow 40 or 50 feet tall. So a dwarf at 15 feet is a relationship. Why do cheap plants grow fast? That's one thing that I tell people all the time. When I'm drawing a plan, I make sure that I tell them, if you go to the nursery and there's 10 different plants that have the same name, some of my favorites are like Indian hawthorn or gardenias, even azaleas and camellias. If you look at 15 of them there, they have different names, different colors, and some of them are like $20 and some of them like $50. When you look at them at the nursery, they're all the same size. They're all in three gallon. They're all about two and a half or three feet tall. The cheaper the plant means the faster it grows. If you're a nurseryman that you're growing tens of thousands of plants and you can get your plant to the market in two years versus having to wait five years for the plant to get the same size, then that's when you send it to the market. So what you're looking at at the nursery is the cheapest plants are probably only two or three years old. The more expensive plants may be five or six years old and they're only ever going to get three or four or five feet tall. It's what I call buy now, pay later. You buy a cheap plant now and you could be paying forever trying to maintain it. I tell customers, if I've recommended a certain plant, a certain name, use that plant. Don't buy the cheaper one because eventually somebody's going to have to cut it down. And that's the bottom line. We're all into somewhat instant gratification. Can you talk about instant gratification in a garden and how it can frustrate us in the future? Well, the phrase that I came up with years ago is instant gratification leads to future frustration. Probably the, the biggest plant that comes to play there are Leyland Cypress and similar screening plants. Every single week, like today, I was out at a house and 15 years ago, somebody planted some Leyland Cypresses and they planted them six feet on center. And of course, as you understand, when plants are laid out in the field, you lay them out based on the center of the plant. So you basically start a hole, you go over three feet or four feet or six feet, and you start a hole, place the plant center to center, not edge to edge. Bottom line is, Leyland Cypress, and there again, Lorpetalums or another one that they place too close together. But the biggest problem with Leyland Cypress and some of the needled evergreens is that when they 
they're placed too close together and they grow into each other, they start to die because they don't get enough sunshine. Instant gratification by planting little bitty tiny Leyland cypresses five feet on center is going to mean that in about 20 years, there's going to be no foliage, no needles of any kind from about 10 or 15 feet up all the way down to the ground. And the biggest problem with the needled evergreens in that case is you can prune them all you want to and they'll never grow again. With instant gratification, if you were to buy a bigger plant, but the spacing is the most important part, had a customer a couple of weeks ago that they had planted some uh, Leyland cypress and some green giant arborvitaes and they planted them too close together. And I told the customer, I said, you've got two choices. You can leave them like this and in five years, cut down every other one. Or since they've only been in the ground a year, you can go ahead and dig up every other one and plant them 15 feet on center because eventually they're all going to grow together, especially the needle evergreens. They're going to lose all their foliage. So broadleaf evergreens like hollies and camellias, uh, azaleas that have a broad leaf versus a evergreen cedar cypress. Cypress, juniper, those are what we call the needle evergreens. Those you can plant closer together and they'll grow together and make a solid hedge. But I would rather a person spend twice as much money and plant half the number of plants than plant little bitty tiny plants and plant them too close together because eventually some of the plants are going to die because there's just not enough root space for them. What is the number one thing you should know about a plant before you buy it? The biggest thing that I find that people do is they'll believe the tag. And like a, a friend of mine used to say, plants can't read books. A lot of times the grower wants you to buy a plant. So he's not going to tell you exactly how big it's going to get. My favorite is August Beauty Gardenia. Several years ago, I called the growers and said, why do you have the tags grows, you know, four to six feet tall on there? And their comment was, well, the average person can keep them that size. Well, the problem is somebody goes to the store and they say, oh, this tag says grows four to six feet tall. Or even some cases, they may say six to eight feet tall. And they say, well, I'm going to keep it five feet tall. The problem is if you walk away from that plant and you never touch it, it gets to be 12, sometimes 15 feet tall. In most cases, they plant it under a window or beside a front door and they get way too big. If you Google a plant, Google is a great resource for plants. But if you Google a plant, you want to go to a horticulture site like Clemson University, University of Georgia, University of Missouri, even some northern schools that sometimes will pop up on a Google search. In those, it'll tell you a little bit more detail. A lot of times it'll even say the average person keeps it six feet tall, but if you walk away from it, it'll get 15 feet tall. If you really want to know all that you need to know about plants, you'd get the Manual of Woody Landscape Plants written by Dr. Michael Durr, D-I-R-R. He's the one who writes the book that all horticulture schools use. It will tell you the horticultural facts about the plant, not what somebody wants to sell you about the plant. What does prune up, not down mean? That's a phrase I came up with years ago that, that people would plant some of the plants we talked about, and especially some of the hollies or camellias that want to get 15 or 20 feet tall, that they keep pruning them down. They keep pruning them smaller, smaller, smaller. And my philosophy is, let the top grow as tall as possible. And if the plant is too big for where it is, prune it up. That means prune it into a tree form, take it off all the lower limbs, because if they planted it too close to the walkway and it wants to overtake the walkway, if it wants to grow 20 feet tall, let it grow 20 feet tall, but prune the bottom branches up four to six to eight feet from the ground so that you can walk by it. Instead of pruning it down from the top all the time, let it grow taller and don't fight against Mother Nature. Some cases, you just have to remove the plant. But in some cases, you can leave a plant there, but prune the limbs from the bottom up versus from the top down. Why should you rip out the landscape the builder or or remodeler installed around your new home as fast as possible? Well, bottom line is builders don't care about what the the landscape looks like in 10 years. 
And in most cases, the landscaper doesn't know what it's going to look like in 10 years. Unfortunately, they, a lot of times they don't care. All they want to do is make a profit, get the job done and get out of there. I tell people, if you buy a house and you have new landscaping and the windows are chest high or shorter, but the plants are knee high or taller, those plants have got to be moved sooner than later. Because bottom line is, if you go to the nursery and you've got a plant that's really cheap, that's the same size as a plant that's really expensive, the plant that's really cheap is going to get really big and you're going to end up having to rip it out. 99% of what I see on a daily basis is great plants a lot of times. Most of the time, they're the ligustrum or the dwarf Burford holly, and they're planted in a space between the sidewalk and the house that's only three feet wide and the windows are three feet from the ground, and the plants are already three feet tall, which means they're probably going to want to get at least 15 feet tall like I did with my house, exact same thing. Every single plant that was planted by my builder, including two trees, I moved to different locations because specifically with the trees, what you have to look at, like if, in most neighborhoods, uh, in most communities, you have to plant several trees because of tree density requirements by the different municipalities. But whenever I look at a maple or an oak or an elm or a birch or even a crepe myrtle planted in the middle of the yard with a three-foot diameter circle of mulch, that tree eventually is going to cause a 20-foot diameter area of mulch that'll have to be planted with something. If you take and move that tree from the center of the yard over to the side of the yard so it doesn't screen or doesn't hide the house, then you you can basically just let it go. But if you leave it in that space, you're going to eventually have to plant more plants, put in some ground covers or some shrubs or, or just a whole bunch of mulch because the tree is in the wrong place it should be off to the side instead of the front. Most of the time, those plants are planted in a space they should have never been planted in the first place. More with Bruce Holiday after this. TheGardenQuestion.com is an awesome website because we expand each podcast episode with accurate resources and links for gardeners. You can also listen to every single episode again as many times as you like. Think of it as an extension of the podcast at TheGardenQuestion.com. Would you talk about deer-resistant plants? Every week I deal with places with deer. I was at a house just last week and I asked the homeowner if he seen any deer in the yard. And he said, no, he hadn't seen any. And after I got all the measurements, I found deer tracks in about three different places. I used plants that were, quote, on the deer-resistant list. Most of the states, the state of Georgia has it. Uh, North Carolina has it. Clemson has it. They have a deer-resistant plant list. And they vary a little bit. For the most part, it's most of the same plants. You'll always hear one standard thing. If deer are hungry enough, they'll eat almost anything. I've been to properties where where I knew there were deer everywhere, and I would see things like hydrangeas and hosta that had never been touched. The top three plants that you do not want to use with deer around all start with H, hydrangea, hosta, and Indian hawthorn. Those are the top three plants that deer like. And of course, hydrangea and hosta are shade. Several years ago, I heard it that mentioned that hosta with deer around is called salad bar because they will munch them to the ground. Using plants that are on the deer-resistant list is preferred, but it ends up being kind of a bland landscape, but I have done projects that have uh, hydrangeas and azaleas and deer never touch them. I've done other projects that have tried a hydrangea or tried a, tried a few azaleas and they get eaten to the ground. So I haven't quite figured it out if the deer have different taste buds in different parts of town. In general, you want to stay the plants on the list. Experience teaches you that in some cases, if the area is protected, if the area is where a deer feels like it's going to get trapped, then you can sometimes get away with a plant or two here and there. 
The biggest thing that you can do for deer deterrent is have a big dog. I'm not a dog person myself, but I see more yards with large dogs that have no deer problems because the deer are afraid to go into the yard. Adult male deer can stand right beside a six-foot fence and jump over it. Not a running jump, a standing jump, and jump right over a six-foot fence. Fencing, you know, doesn't help. For those who have ever been to Jekyll Island, St. Simon's Island, you'll see the, the miniature deer out there all the time. And almost every house has wire mesh around most of their plants or their trees. A lot of the sprays, a lot of the liquids, a lot of those things don't really work. You need to go with plants that are on the deer-resistant list. This hasn't been a subject very much here lately in the green industry. And I guess it's because we haven't had droughts or droughts are not making the news. Talk about water-wise landscapes and why they're important. Back in the 90s, when we had the drought period in the Atlanta area where they eventually put in drought restrictions, everybody would ask me for a drought-resistant landscape. And I said, well, you know, the last 20 or 30 years, I've always used plants that were drought-resistant. The difference between a drought-resistant plant and a non-drought-resistant plant is putting a willow in a parking lot island or putting a river birch in a parking lot island. A good landscape design is going to use plants that will not need additional water. I have a house that has, as you can imagine, dozens of plants, and I never, ever water them. The biggest misconception in the horticulture industry, especially in the irrigation industry, is irrigation companies make you feel like you've got to have their product 24-7, 365. We found out during the drought that Bermuda and Zoysia lawns can tolerate between six and eight weeks of zero rain, zero dew, zero moisture, and still be alive. They may not be as dark green, but they will come back after a couple of waterings. Good landscape is two things. One is using the right size plant in the right place. It doesn't have to be sheared all the time. A good basic design philosophy is plant it and forget about it. You should be able to do a little bit of light pruning from time to time as a plant is growing into maturity. After a few years, you really shouldn't have to touch a plant if it's the right plant. If you chose a six-foot variety and you're trying to keep it three-foot variety, you can be working on it for years. I wish that they would do away with electric and gas-powered shears because everybody mimics what the landscapers are doing. And the landscapers are doing that because they've planted the wrong plant in the first place. When it comes to water-wise landscape, if you use the right plant and you just put three or four inches of mulch when the plant is first established, and as the plant grows, let it grow and cover the entire area and not keep cutting it back into little meatballs, as we call them, then the plant very shortly will be basically drought resistant and you will not need to water it at all. I usually water my grass four to five times a year. I usually water my shrubs once a month if we're having a severe drought, but most of my shrubs have been in for 10 or 12 years and they don't need any water whatsoever. Irrigation is nice to have when you first install a landscape because then you can get the plants to establish themselves better. The rule is water long and deep. The quickest way to do it is just to get a cat food can, a tuna can, put several of those out in the yard, turn on your irrigation system or hook up your water hose with whatever sprinkler that you've got and see how long it takes to fill up that one inch can and that's what you should set your irrigation to run. Watering any more than that is a waste of water. I was at a house a couple of years ago. They just moved into the house. We were walking through the backyard and we had a dry period and it was soggy. And the first question I asked is, how often do you water? The house was about 10 years old and the irrigation system was watering every single 
day. Their water bill was $1,000 a month. And I said, well, if you want to write me a check, I'm going to save you about $8,000 right now. And I'm going to flip a switch and we're going to make this come on just once a week. They called me like months later and said, my landscape hasn't changed. Matter of fact, it's looking better with less water. Plant roots have to breathe. They need some oxygen. And if they're constantly underwater, they're not going to grow as well. Watering is not near as important as people think it is if you use the right plant. Give us your best pruning practice. No shearing. Bottom line is when you shear a plant, if you were to put your hands in it and you could open it up in the side, you'd see nothing but limbs all over the place. There's only four to six inches of leaves on the outside perimeter of the meatball that you've created. If you just take and hand prune little leggy shoots, if you want to keep a plant smaller, if it grows 12 inches, cut it back eight or cut it back six using hand pruners and individually prune branches, prune limbs, don't prune leaves. Why do you think people shear in the first place? Well, there's a phrase that we use here in Atlanta with crepe myrtles called crepe murder. Crepe murder transfers into the majority of the plants being used because probably 90% of the plants that people have in the yard were planted by the builder's landscaper. They're having to keep them cut back all the time. And so the easiest, cheapest way to do it is to fire up your gas-powered shears and cut them into meatballs. People think that's what they're supposed to do. I've been to people's houses that you can barely see the windows, barely get to the front door. And I say, so you want to design the front? Say, oh, I'm fine with the front. Let's do the backyard. Well, the problem is nine-tenths of the plants in the front should have never been planted there. And they're trying to maintain them. Started out trying to maintain them at four feet. Now they're trying to maintain them at six feet. At some point, they won't be able to see front windows at all. Then finally, when they see the front windows, they find out all the trim is rotted because of all the moisture. The biggest reason that people do that is they see other people doing that. That's what they think they're supposed to do. And every customer I talk to always says they want low maintenance. Low maintenance is using a plant that only grows a certain size, plant it, and forget about it. Kind of like putting a Cadillac into an 8 by 10 shed. It ain't going to work. The only advantage is with plants, the majority of these plants, you can cut them to the ground and they'll come back. So you can't kill them by pruning them, but you can make them look like meatballs and the best landscape is a plant that is very soft and wistful and kind of blows in the breeze that you never have to touch. How do you know which mulch to use? I like pine straw myself because I feel like it's more natural. Even though I'm a University of Georgia graduate, I do not like black mulch and I do not like red mulch, primarily because they become the most dominant element in the landscape. That's what you see is the pretty black or the pretty red mulch. I believe in greenscaping. You should have something green and growing in the areas instead of putting in mulch year after year after year, putting in two or three or four inches of mulch and then having to spray for weeds in the meantime. If you have something growing in that area, hence using a plant that gets maybe six feet tall by six feet wide or two feet tall by eight feet wide or a ground cover like monkey grass or vinca minor or pachysandra a lot of different ground cover plants that will cover the ground keep you from having to put in mulch. Good landscape, the planting beds are covered with something green and growing instead of having to put mulch. The number one thing that people do wrong, where they prune the plants in the meatballs, then they have to put more mulch around them. And then they put too much mulch around them. They start losing their leaves. They say, why? It's because there's six inches of mulch on top of the roots. And so the roots can't breathe, A, or B, it holds too much water. So the leaves fall off. It all goes back to selecting the plant that grows to the size and the shape that you want it to. And then you can eliminate mulch. You can eliminate weeds and you can eliminate pruning.
had a couple of subdivision entrances that I did. The president of HOA was complaining about how many plants I was recommended using. And I said, well, how many bales of pine straw? He said, we're using about a thousand bales of pine straw twice a year. I said, if you plant all these plants in three or four years, you're going to drop back to a hundred bales of pine straw twice a year. How much money would that save your HOA? And he was flabbergasted. He never thought about that before. Planting plants is better for the environment. It's less maintenance, less watering, and you don't have to put in mulch year after year after year. Mulch is a preference. The bottom line is you only use two inches of mulch, but four inches of pine straw because they're going to equal about the same amount of thickness on the top of the roots of the plant. You don't want to put in six inches of mulch because the roots are not going to be able to breathe and it's going to hold too much water. What's your thought about inorganic mulch like pebbles and rocks? Neither one of them are very good. The two things about those is, A, they do not hold moisture. B, they get way too hot, so they actually cause the ground to evaporate more moisture than necessary. Over near me, they put in a Hardee's a few years ago, and I sent some pictures of what they did to some friends of mine. We said, okay, the clock is now ticking. They put in a lot of trees, and they've used river rock about the size of an egg up to almost a, a baseball, or maybe a tennis ball size. Eight out of the 10 trees died within two years. They died because A, they didn't have irrigation. B, all the rocks were getting so hot in the summertime, it evaporated any water that got in there. And then C, either the rubber mulch or the any kind of stone mulch, weeds will still grow through it. Weed block is probably one of the biggest misconceptions in the horticulture industry as far as products are concerned, because weed block does keep weeds from growing under the ground through the weed block. But after a couple of years of the weed block being down on the ground, the mulch will start to rot and decompose. And I've sometimes seen three foot tall weeds growing on top of the weed block. And even when you pull the weed up, the roots go down into the mesh. When you pull the weed up, you pull all the weed block up too. Weed block is a short term answer. If it's any kind of a slope, the mulch is going to slide right off in a heavy wind or rain. Eventually, weeds are going to grow on top of the weed block. Even if you were to use some type of mulch or plastic or whatever, and you were to use those types of mulch or rubber, I believe in recycling, that's great. But those two products are best for like a walkway or a pathway, but not for mulch because they tend to cause more problems in the future. I have had people say that they're going to buy some Bermuda seed and broadcast it across a wheat Bermuda sodded lawn. Is that a good practice? That's probably one of the worst things that you can do. Bermuda seed, what we call common Bermuda, is great for a pasture. Common Bermuda in a pasture, if it grows 10 to 12 inches tall, they harvest the seed. The Bermuda sod that builders put down is fine, but it is a hybrid grass. It does not produce a seed. The only way that you can get Bermuda sod is to plant Bermuda sod. Years ago, they offered sprigs, and basically they would take Bermuda sod and chop it up in like a blender, and then you could spread it out over your lawn. And in about a year's time, it would all grow together because it does grow by what we call underground stolons or above-ground roots. But Bermuda seed, you're introducing a weed because it's going to grow much faster, it's going to want to grow taller, and it's going to be thinner. It's not going to be as thick and dense. The University of Georgia is the creator of all of the Bermuda anywhere in the world. It's either Tiff Wave 419, Tiff Green 328, Tiff Tough, that's T-I-F, Tiff Green, Tiff Tough, Tiff Grand, because they were created in Tifton, Georgia. All came because of the University of Georgia, and it primarily was researched and developed and genetically engineered, so to speak, for golf courses and for football fields. 
biggest misunderstanding in the general public is what we call full sun and full shade grasses. The bottom line difference in a 12-hour day of full sun and full shade, the difference is only two hours of sunshine. Bermuda needs seven hours of sun. Fescue needs five hours of sun. Now, fescue is a different animal. And then zoysia needs around six hours of sun. If you have more than six hours of sun, you're better off going with Bermuda or with zoysia because they will do much better. They will spread and grow quicker. Fescue, to me, is the only grass that you have to plant seed to get sod. Bermudas and zoysias, they're a hybrid grass, so they do not produce a seed. There is a zoysia seed, and it's okay. Some growers will use zoysia seed to create zoysia sod. It's called zenith zoysia. It's not quite as thick and dense as some of the hybrid zoysia grasses are. Centipede, you can pretty well get a great lawn out of centipede by planting by seed, and the difference is primarily if you want instant grass. Now, the biggest difference between Bermuda, zoysia, centipede, and fescue seed is fescue seed first of all, needs to be planted in the spring or preferably in the fall. It needs a minimum nighttime temperature of 53 or 54 degrees to germinate. Fescue seed will germinate in five to seven days. In seven to 10 days, you can mow it. And in 14 days, it's pretty well done. Bermuda, zoysia, and centipede takes anywhere from four to six to eight weeks to germinate. And it needs to be planted in the heat of the summer, usually after Mother's Day or Memorial Day, whenever the, the weather finally gets into the 70s and the nighttime temperatures in the 60s. But bottom line is you have to wait four, six, or eight weeks for any germination whatsoever. If you have a large area, an area on a slope, you've really got to put the seed out and water it lightly, keep it wet for four, six, or eight weeks. And it usually takes about two seasons for the seeded varieties to really start to crowd out the weeds better. But the bottom line is there's not that much difference in sun and shade from a full sun grass to a full shade grass. We've got landscape architects, landscape designers, garden designers, landscape contractors, and just landscapers. How do you know who to hire for what? Well, the biggest thing is experience. One of my first bosses ever was a horticulture graduate, and he was a landscape designer, one of the best in the Atlanta area. The office manager had worked under him in the high school, and he was probably the second best landscape designer in Atlanta, but that was because of the quality of work that they did. So experience is one thing. Legally speaking, a landscape architect has to be registered by the state in which they're working. If you're working in multiple states, you have to get multiple registration. The only way to do that is you have to first get a degree in landscape architecture. There are several really good schools. University of Georgia, Clemson, Auburn have very good horticulture schools, and you can get a degree in landscape design. But the primary difference is the legal aspect. You cannot do the work of a landscape architect and call yourself a landscape architect unless you're a registered landscape architect. Second of all, you cannot make your primary income as a landscape designer unless you're a registered landscape architect. You can work for a landscape company, work for a nursery company, or have a landscape business, and you can do landscape design legally. It cannot be your primary source of revenue. Landscape architects are trained in engineering, in hydrology, in not only planting, city design, corporate design, park design, and some architecture. So as a landscape architect, I can design your deck, your arbor, your patio, your pool, your grading, your drainage, all the way down to your plantings. Some landscape architects specialize in city planning or park planning, recreational planning, 
and don't really get into the planting part. Some landscape architects don't deal with plantings as much as other landscape architects like myself who are in the planting part every single day. The biggest thing I tell young designers coming out of school is pay attention when you're going through neighborhoods and as you're measuring properties and you're seeing plants to see how big they really get. And in the tens of thousands of properties that I've designed and also properties that I have witnessed, almost every week or every year, I see plants doing something that the book said they weren't going to do. By getting the education, it gives you a good start. You cannot call yourself a landscape architect or you can't do the work of a landscape architect. Landscape contractors are a licensed company that has insurance, that has usually some type of experience or education in the landscape business. A landscaper, to me, is almost like a dirty word. If somebody called me a landscaper, and I've corrected a couple of people in the past, say, excuse me, please don't call me a landscaper. It's not that I'm hung up on being called a landscape architect, but a landscaper is a guy who goes out and mows the grass is just a couple of bushes in the ground, which, by the way, is another phrase that I've come up with. The difference between a bush and a shrub is a bush is what you rip out because it's a weed, and a shrub is what you plant because it should grow there. The difference between a landscape contractor and a landscaper, so to speak, is basically in the type of business that they're doing. Had a customer just last week that his landscaper had put in some plants called Golden Globe Arborvita, and they were planted two feet from the sidewalk. It was a new house. I said, did you just plant those? And he told me the story. I said, they're, they're going to get about six feet by six feet. And he said, well, the tag says they three to four feet by three to four feet. I said, well, there again, that's what the tag says. And I sent him a picture later of some that I'd seen a few years ago. They were eight feet by eight feet, and they'd been in for about 20 years. A landscaper is going to go to the nursery, and as another person told me, they were colorblind. They were blinded by the colors that they saw saw that they could plant in people's yards, but they were blinded also by the size of how big they would actually get and or they believed what the tag said. If a person says, yeah, I'm a landscaper, probably don't want to walk away. You want to run away. And not all landscape architects are good planting designers, but they're again experience and the number of plants they've done, the number of years they've been doing it and how willing they are to learn I go to more seminars about plants than I do anything else because I have to have so many units per year for my registration of contact hours like other professionals that are registered. A landscape architect doesn't always mean and always guarantee they're going to be a good planting designer. There are good landscape designers that know a lot about plants, so it's more education and more experience than it is the name. But the legal part of it is that you have to have a degree in landscape architecture. You have to pass an exam. It usually takes three days to take the exam. And then you have to get certification units every year, as well as paying a fee for your license. Can you tell us a funny garden or landscape related story? It's always funny to me how people will plant things. I had a customer several years ago that they planted some Japanese cliera right in front of their bay window. And the Japanese cliera were already taller than the windowsill was. And I asked him, said, well, we need to move these plants. He said, well, I just planted them. And I said, well, you might have just planted them, but they're the wrong plant. I usually talk about Japanese cliera as my favorite plant that I never use because they do get very large. I was at a house in, in Augusta, Georgia, several years ago. There's a Japanese cliera in a fairly heavily shaded area that was almost 30 feet tall. Now, the dwarf version of it will only get about... 10 feet tall is the wrong plant in the wrong place. Probably the funniest story was a customer I designed a project for him off of Mount Perrin Road, and I probably could take you to the house today, and it was probably close to 30 years ago. I designed the backyard, and I was putting all the plants in. I was on the install side of the business at that point in time. I planted all the plants, and, and the husband came out and said, my wife really didn't want me to tell you this, but she really doesn't like this plant here. She wants to put it over there. You know, move this other plant over here or something. I said, well, it's going to get too big over there, but if that's what she wants to do, I'll do it. So I did. 
about two years later, they called me back to do the front yard and he came out and he said, well, my wife is too embarrassed to come out here, but she wants you to change those plants back the way you had them on the plan because they're not working where she wanted to plant them. And I said, well, it's not that I like being right. It's that I just don't like to be wrong. And I've made my share of mistakes. I think anybody who's been in the landscape business has made mistakes. There have been quite a few plants that have come out in the industry. They haven't been in the industry very long. And I've planted some at my houses in the past. And the tag says grows three feet tall. It only been in the industry four or five years. And then 10 years later, it got six feet tall. So mistakes will still be made. But by going to horticultural sources, a lot of times you'll keep from making the mistakes. The more plants you plant, the more mistakes you're probably going to make. Paying attention to the size that the actual plant was going to grow by watching the plants over the years. I think I originally got into the landscape business primarily because I like working outside of working in construction. What is your earliest garden memory? My grandfather had a crop that he grew and the neighbors thought he was crazy, but he put three kids through college uh, up in the North Georgia mountains planting dahlias. Dahlias, as we know, are a tuber, kind of like a potato, and you plant one and they multiply. And so when you dig them up in the fall, the one you planted, you've got four or five or sometimes six that you could divide. And he would sell those and he had a mail order business. Every year he had migrant workers come in. He planted around 60,000 plants every year. People thought he was crazy for plowing under his fields and not planting corn, not planting oats, not planting beans or whatever in the mountains of North Georgia. But when they started seeing cars going by every weekend to the tune of 40 or 50 cars every Saturday and Sunday in the summertime, coming in, placing orders, and then seeing him buying new trucks and new cars and building a new house, they figured it. he must have known what he was doing. Not the money part of it, but just working outside is what I enjoyed and I probably give my grandfather the credit for that because he made a very nice living planting dahlias as his cash crop. Do you have another early memory you want to talk about? Working with my mom in the yard, my dad was not a big landscaper. He was in the banking business and he liked to fiddle in the yard, but my mom probably taught me more about planting stuff because we would plant dahlias and irises and caladoyas and other things. My first job ever was mowing grass. I guess I just really enjoyed working outside. And I remember the summer, I think I was either 13 or 14 years old. My mom took me to a lawnmower place in Smyrna, Georgia. She bought me a lawnmower and I think it was $35 what the lawnmower costs. And I think I charged a dollar for a front and backyard or 45 cents for a front or 45 cents for a back or a dollar for both of them. And I paid her back that summer by mowing grass. So that's probably my fondest memory was mowing grass in the summertime in my neighborhood and paying my mom back for the mower that she bought for me. Why'd you decide to pursue the landscape or horticultural profession? When I was in high school, I worked in a hardware store. I really enjoyed that. I enjoyed learning how to fix things because you didn't have all the kits and stuff and you had nuts and bolts and screws and wire. So you had to kind of figure out how to fix things. And, and I enjoyed that. But then in the Atlanta area, when all the construction was going on, carpenters made the most money. So my brother that's younger than I and I both started working construction and I enjoyed making the money out of it. When I graduated high school, I thought I wanted to go in some type of engineering or something to do with construction. I didn't particularly want to go to Georgia. Georgia Tech because I wasn't that smart. I was a, a good B and C student and I had friends who went to Georgia Tech and were having a hard time making the grade, so to speak. I ended up going to the University of Georgia and I thought I'd get into maybe some type of physics or math or some type of thing with engineering because at that time there was no such thing as computers, so I couldn't go into 
IT, I wanted to go into something to build things. I just enjoyed building things from Lincoln Logs to Legos growing up. Bottom line is, it was just a chance that I was thumbing through the catalog at University of Georgia. I saw landscape architecture and thought, that sounds interesting. I started taking some courses and the rest is history. It was more of a just a chance looking at things. But again, I liked building. I liked making things. I wanted to be in some type of construction. And I just lucked into getting a degree in landscape architecture with a lot of hard work. Now, you've already talked about making mistakes and how valuable they are, but what is your most valuable garden mistake? I would say learning to look at what plants do, planting plants, because probably the biggest gardening mistake I made was in one house that we live in, I planted some river birch about 10 feet from the house, not realizing that they would get eight-inch diameter trunks and the limbs would span about 50 feet. Probably the biggest mistake I made was planting trees, especially river birch and maples, too close to the house. And so now when I go to meet with someone and they've got to plant a tree that's less than 25 feet from the house, I recommend if they can, if it hasn't been planted long, to plant it at least 20 or 25 feet from the house. So probably more from the tree standpoint was where the biggest mistakes were. I'd like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have. In my garden, I have something that blooms almost every month out of the year. Tell us about your garden. Whether it's Indian hawthorn or gardenia or hydrangea, two of my favorite plants. One is called Japanese caria. Uh, the other one is called winter jasmine or jasminum nudiflorum. Both of those, while they are deciduous, they lose their leaves in the wintertime, but they have beautiful flowers in the dead of winter. The one plant I don't have yet is called paperbush or edgeworthia. That's the one plant I don't have enough room for. Having plants that bloom at different times of year, I've got about five different types of camellias, about 10 different types of azaleas. I've got five different types of hydrangeas. They all bloom at a little different time of year. And then the flowering trees like Coosa dogwood that blooms in May, Florida dogwood that blooms in March, and then the Chinese cherry, Altubanalis cherry that they're in bloom now. Those are some of the plants that I like that I use, that I have, that I can enjoy. And so I don't have to plant any annuals. I've got several perennials from Black Eyed Susans to Purple Coneflower. One of my favorite little perennials is a ground cover called Hardy Ice Plant because they bloom almost all summer. So I think that that's the key and that's what people want, but you've got to have a yard that's big enough to have enough room for some of those plants. And a lot of people don't see those plants because they don't go to the nurseries in January, in December, in February, because they all think that you're supposed to plant plants in the spring. A lot of those plants are blooming at the nurseries at times of year when people don't ever go and see them. What are the future plans for your garden? Just tidying up a few things. I've still got a few plants on my bucket list, so to speak. And I've just been so busy the last couple of years that I just haven't had the time to go get some of those plants to plant them. One of the plants that I really want to get is a variegated Daphne, which is an extremely difficult plant to grow. But once you get them and you get them growing, they have a phenomenal fragrance in the late winter, February, early March. They get about five feet by five feet, and the fragrance is something that is just phenomenal. There's a few perennials, like some, some more irises and some gladiolias that I want to get, and some different varieties of Lenten rose. Got a few little pockets that I just haven't gotten to yet. In your professional career, who's been your biggest influencer? My first boss ever, I'll go ahead and mention, was Jim Gibb. Now Gibbs Gardens and Gibbs Landscape. Jim taught me the quality of design. He taught me about low maintenance. Even though I had a degree in landscape architecture, a lot from him by watching what he did. And Ray Knight is an office manager and production manager. We're very sensitive to low maintenance plants, and then also creating textures in the different parts of the year. 
in the recent years, I would say the person that's influenced me the most just because of his hard work was Pete Pike. Pete and I were friends and he referred me a lot. I ran his landscape design division for nine years, Pike Nurseries. And I'd say that he's probably the person that made the most, because uh, that, that was 1990s until the early 2000s. He really spent a lot of time with me and we grew that business. Uh, when I took over the design group, it was doing about $400,000 a year. And when I left, we were doing almost a million dollars in nothing but landscape design. This has been episode 34, adding value with your landscape design with Bruce Holiday. Thank you, Bruce. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.